So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read it here in a second. We started this two weeks ago, a new series in Daniel. And the title is not really nifty nifty, but it's, uh, I think it gets to the point. Tell me again, who is in charge here? I think that's a great question for a title. So last time we, uh, we started out, we actually uh, handed you, uh, we did the compost piles. If you remember the compost pile, went through all the details. And so you had that handout, and there are copies back there if you lost it or forgot it or didn't pick it up the last time. There's the outline right here. Okay, and then on the back, of course, was a timeline that will kind of give you, will give you the time frame in which Daniel wrote and which he lived. Uh, there were other details, like uh, Daniel 1 is in, Her- is in Hebrew, and Daniel 2 through 7 is in Aramaic, the language of Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel 8 through 12 is all in Hebrew. Lots of little details we looked at last time. And so now we're going to actually jump into Daniel 1, uh, Daniel in earnest, starting with Daniel 1 today. So out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me by standing. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. The only time, the last time Shinar was used for Babylon is clear back in in Genesis 11. It's really odd that Daniel uses the term, the name Shinar for Babylon. Probably implying this is just like as bad as Genesis 11 in so many ways. So he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs, here's what the Hebrew says, it's Yassim, the chief of the eunuchs put names on them. He gave them names. He put names on them. Daniel, he put the name Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel put on his heart, he resolved, he put on his heart, the, the chief of the eunuchs put names on him, on them, And so Daniel puts on his heart, resolves, that he will not be defiled. He will not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why would he, should he see that you, are in worse, you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all the visions and dreams At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there, until the first year of King Cyrus. This, my friends, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, it is too easy to think ourselves victims of this governmental decree or that magistrate's actions. But you are on your throne and have never resigned or retired. May our confidence in you, Daniel's God, become riveting. Amen. You may be seated. So in southwest Oklahoma, down just about 20 miles or so southwest of Carnegie, I'm going to get my directions right, southwest of Carnegie, not too far past there, there was once the Rainy Mountain Boarding School. It was in existence from 1893 to 1920. It was like all of the other Indian boarding schools in that day that were set up. They were part of the U.S. government's attempts to transform Native American children by taking them from their families and immersing them into the forced assimilation program that lay at the heart of that era's Indian policy. It was committed to civilizing Indians according to what white Americans considered civilizing. So the government's vision of a new Indian race that would be white in every way except skin color was the plan. In fact, they had a slogan that was around. It was actually crafted by an army general. Killed the Indian, save the man. Now we have, hopefully your skin crawls when you hear about that, right? Who here would want their kids taken from them and forced to go to government school? Raise your hand. Right. We would be incensed. So there's all kinds of things about this. I understand the motives. Some of the motives was a mixed bag, but it's harsh, okay? The reason why I bring it up, though, because it wasn't unusual. Conquerors have often taken the kill the Indian and save the man approach, and you see it going on in Daniel 1. Kill the Jew, save the man. That's the program. Okay, so it's not unusual. So what you see here in Daniel 1 is very human, and it is pretty normal. But behind and through and by means of human ingenuity and scheming that thinks it's in control, something else is going on behind the scenes, and it is noted three times, and I tried to emphasize it in the reading. The Lord gave, God gave, God gave. And so we're going to let that be 
the guide of our three points. And so that's on the back of the worship guide, the three points there the Lord gave, or God gave them up. God gave his servant uh, favor, and God gave his servants, plural, uh, skill and learning. That's the three points, and you can see how that breaks out. And there's some quotations in the sermon notes that you will want to look at too. So first off, notice it says is that God gave up his people. It begins in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And it looks like if a CNN reporter was standing there at that moment with their little nickel-plated microphone and standing there and the cameras were rolling, you would see, oh, there's Nebuchadnezzar and all of his mighty power. That's why he conquered Jerusalem. Look at his firepower. Look at his military might. Look at his skill. Look at his programs. Oh, that's how he conquered Jerusalem. And yet the very next statement, and the Lord gave. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with the vessels, some of the vessels of the temple. And what you realize right up front, and that's what you're intended to realize, is that no matter what Nebuchadnezzar thought, no matter what you would have seen on that CNN broadcast, the reality, the little secret is this, is that God is active still even in that situation. It may be very subtle. You couldn't see it on camera. But he's active and he's still working. There's the first thing. The second thing is you then notice that God is also willing to be shamed along with his shameful people. Notice how it goes in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them then to the land of Shinar and put them in the temple of his gods, then placed the vessels in the treasuries there. I mean, here's God who says of the temple and all of its furnishings, these are holy, and yet God allows those to be taken away, some of those to be taken away and put there in the temples of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. There's a sense in which God allows himself to be shamed with his shameful people. And when you think about verse 2, does anybody, can anybody remember another Old Testament story, like maybe early in 1 Samuel, where God's people were not being really good and right, and neither their priests, because two of them, Hophni and Phinehas, were reprobate clergy. Right? Horrible, reprehensible. And here they are, the Philistines are coming against them, coming against Israel. And what does Hophni and Phinehas do? They go to the tabernacle and they grab what? Anybody remember? The Ark of the Covenant. And they bring it into the camp and everybody cheers. Hoorah! Right? And the Philistines are shaking. Oh, we've never fought anybody who had their God come in their camp. Yet what does God allow to happen? He allows his shameful people to be shamed, to be defeated. And he allows the Ark of the Covenant to be confiscated by pagans and taken and hauled all the way to the temple of their god, specifically the god Dagon. Good job. You guys were awake in those classes. Awesome. Now, there's an end to that story that wasn't so good for Dagon, and I think that there's also a subtle hint here as well that things may not end quite the way Nebuchadnezzar wants when he puts God's vessels in the temple of his gods, as we will see when we finally get to Daniel 5 where one of his descendants meets God's finger writing on the wall. There may be another subtle hint, and it may be this, and it seems like that's, this is a great possibility, is that God also wants his people to know, as part of his vessels are taken from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, while his people are being taken from Jerusalem and brought to, brought to Babylon, that there's something of a reminder for them 
that God is also in Babylon. His vessels are there as a reminder that he's also in Babylon. God is active. It's very subtle. And you wouldn't see it when the CNN reporter is standing there reporting the news. But it's the reality. It's the secret for God's people. And the Lord gave. And so all of that to simply say, I think to pull it all together, I think Ralph Davis gets it right. And this is, is your first quotation. Here then is God in his sovereign role, but a sovereignty not visible to the world. Only his people who know the secret of verse 2 the Lord gave will be able to see it. Sometimes that is the only glue that holds one's sanity intact. What a great statement. Sometimes that's the only glue that holds God's servant's sanity intact. The Lord gave. He is active. It may be subtle. You may not see it. See him doing things specifically but you know it, and that holds you together. And so, very fitting, the very first thing the Lord gives is he gives his people to be captive, right? He gives them to their captors. In fact, when you, you go back, if you remember last time we met, Jeremiah 24, which is talking about this season, and Jeremiah 29, which is a letter of Jeremiah to the people of this time, God says repeatedly, that they, I've sent them into exile. The place where I sent them into exile. There it's emphatically stated so that God's people can't miss it. We're being sent there by God himself. And so the Lord gives, God gives his people up. But then notice starting around verse 8. It actually really begins at verse 7. But it's verse 8 which is where we're going to start, kind of work back to uh, from. But from 8 through 16, God gives his servant, singular, God gives Daniel. God gives his servant, favor and compassion. Now there's an emphatic, uh, an emphasis on a specific word in the Hebrew that may well help us here, and I tried to, I, I gave it to you, I told you about it, and it's very simple. The chief of the eunuchs put the names of these uh, of, uh, gods on Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He put names on them. In fact, then it says, he put on Daniel, Belteshazzar, and it goes from there. And so then comes verse 8. And so Daniel puts on his heart. So notice the play on words. right? Just like the names, the pagan names are being put on him. He puts on his heart. And what does he put on his heart? He resolves that he will not defile himself with the king's food. Now that generates all kinds of discussion. What was it about the food? And so forth. We don't know. It doesn't say it was pork. It doesn't say anything about the quality of the food. I do have an idea, and I'm going to give it to you in a minute. But I want you to notice what Daniel did, starting in verse 9. And so God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Notice that Daniel recognizes God gave him favor and compassion with the chief of the eunuchs. And so he, he takes a gamble. He doesn't throw a religious hissy fit. Right? If you put this in context of verses 1 through 7, you realize this is a total immersion program. You're going to be educated in Babylonian language and Babylonian mythology and Babylonian science and Babylonian literature and Babylonian everything and Babylonian names and probably Babylonian clothes. And we're going to give you Babylonian food. And what does Daniel not do? Notice he does not throw a religious hissy fit. He does not say... 
that's my life. It's my life. I belong to God and I refuse to take your education. I refuse to take your position. I refuse to take your names. And I refuse to take your, your food. So there, pfft, he doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He takes a risk. And notice what he does. He offers a workable alternative. We don't want to defile ourselves with the food. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we don't want to defile ourselves with the food. And so here's, here's a test. Give us, not the king's food, give us vegetables. Put us on a vegetarian diet. Blech. Put us on a vegetarian diet for 10 days. And just give us water. That would be bad because of all the bacteria. But anyways, give us just water. And then see what happens and make a decision based on what you see. That statement, Daniel actually is, willing, is telling him he's willing to submit to his decision in the end. So notice he gives him a workable alternative. He gives a space for a test period, and he promises to submit to the decision based upon the results. Now, you've got to understand, Daniel and, and, and uh, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they're being immersed, assimilated with a three-year program where they're going to be thoroughly Babylonian by the time they get done. It's a, it is public education or whatever. It's just shoved down their throats, and all the learning that they've got to learn, and they've got to know how to stand in the king's court. So there's other things beyond just classroom learning. They've got to know the names to use with the king, and the magistrates, and the lesser officials, and they've got to know how to curtsy and bow, and all those things that go with it, right? It's a total immersion program. What's going to happen if you have a total immersion program? What could happen if you have a total immersion program? You'll forget who you are. Imagine if you were 13. And all of a sudden, you get, you get captured, and you get thrown into Iraq, and you get into a total three-year uh, Iraqi immersion program. You have to learn their politics. You have to learn about Islam. You have to learn their language. You have to learn their customs. You have to dress like them. You can't be with your parents. Notice Daniel in the three. There's no parents around anymore. Right? It's a total immersion program. The chances are you will lose who you are, which is the point of the program. That's what Daniel's in. And so he and the, and the other three. And so then, therefore, to keep himself from becoming fully assimilated, Daniel and the three draw a private behind the scenes where Nebuchadnezzar could not see it, nor the local police department, nor anybody else in public could see it, draws a private behind the scenes line in the sand one that would not be very easily noticed, uh, don't, just don't let us have the king's food. Just put it aside. Give us vegetables and water. Something that then would become a daily reminder. Think about it. Breakfast and supper. What do you have for breakfast? Green beans. What do you have for supper? Peas. Is that it? That's it, right? But every time you ate, you would remember, why did we do this? Remember who we are and whose we are and why we are. He draws a very private, subtle, behind the, line, behind the scenes line in the sand that will give them a daily reminder to whom they belong. Why would he draw that line? So he would not lose, they would not lose who they are. They would learn all the things the Babylonians gave them, but they would always remember whose they are and who they are pretty important, I think. And so Wendy Wider in her commentary, and this is in your quotation there, in her uh, Zondervan commentary, 
puts it this way. Daniel's resolution was less about making, about taking a public stand than making a private decision to remember his life source during the three years of total immersion training. Every time they ate, Daniel and his friends would be reminded that although they could not choose to avoid idolatrous Babylonian culture, they could choose to be nourished by the king of kings rather than the king of Babylon. And I think that's the point. That's what he means by we don't want to be defiled by the king's food. We don't want to be lost in this one last thing. We want to draw the line in the sand here. I think it's important that he does it very subtly because all the way through Daniel, you will notice this. Daniel never makes a public stand. Daniel never calls everybody up to go out and march in the streets. He doesn't get up and shake his fists. He doesn't get up and thump his chest. He doesn't get up and draw attention to himself. He's just plodding along in faithfulness to the God of whom he believes. The God who gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The God who gave him favor and compassion. And I think that's a pretty important point all the way through Daniel because it's exactly what Jesus does. Go back and read Luke 4. He doesn't make a scene. He reads the passage. He says, this is talking about me. Everybody's wowed. They're impressed with Jesus. But then as he continues to talk, they don't like the outcome. And so they get mad at him and try to throw him off. Or think about in Matthew chapter 12 when, when he's healing and uh, such, but he tells people when he heals them, he keeps saying, and this happens in Matthew 12, he says, don't make me known. Don't go out there and get me a big following. And so Matthew then quotes Isaiah and says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, etc. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed we will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so that's exactly what Daniel's doing. It's the very program that Jesus will work out later and do himself. And so he draws this line in the sand. And why would he do that? Well, remember... In Daniel 1 through 6, these are who, what God called the good figs in Jeremiah 24. These are the good figs. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and all the rest of God's people in Babylon at the time. These are the good figs that he's got his eye on and he will restore. And so then you see them, uh, you see that here. And then what happens is you see them actually working out Jeremiah's letter to them from Jeremiah 29. And what's the heartbeat of that letter? I sent you into exile in Babylon, so therefore seek the shalom, the welfare of the city where I sent you captive, because in its shalom, in its welfare, you will find shalom, welfare. And you see Daniel doing just that. He's working for the shalom of this pagan king and this pagan kingdom. That's why he's drawing this subtle line in the sand, because God doesn't call us to go out and rant and rave and burn houses down and protest and do all those things. And that's exactly how he's working it out. And so without Daniel and the other three getting swallowed up completely, what they're doing is they're gaining what they can to do what shalom pursuing they can without becoming Babylonian pagans. The kind of quiet resistance from Daniel 
And the three might well be what lies behind Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. But we urge you, brothers, to love one another more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So God gives his servant favor and compassion to do this. And so it goes further as God also gives his servants, now all four of them specifically, gives his servants learning and skill. Learning and skill in what? Starting in verse 17. Learning and skill in pagan skills and in pagan learning. Well, it doesn't compromise them. But he gives them he gives them learning and skill. They're going to be learning all of the mythology. They're going to be learning all the magic. And not that they're going to practice it. You never see them practice it. But they're going to be learning, standing there watching. Okay, that's why you do that. That's how you do it. This is what it's for. Oh, I got it. So that from within that context, when they begin to speak, they can actually speak in that context. He gives his servants learning and skill in pagan skills and pagan learning as long as it doesn't compromise them. And God's gifts bring plentiful results in a very difficult situation. Notice what happens at the end. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar finally, after the total immersion program, brings them in and he examines them. And it says at the end of verse 19, therefore they stood before the king so they knew how to stand in the court and all of the details that that would require. And then verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Here you begin to see the subversive work of God. God is active. It may be subtle. You may not see all the things, but here you begin to see the subversive work of God. God gives some of his people favor and compassion, but he also gives them learning and skill while they are receiving the best education that Babylonian, Babylonian you can throw at them. And they excel at it. And from that position, they then can bear witness. Think of chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. They can then bear witness that God is actually the king. And the pagan powers, the Nebuchadnezzars and Belshazzars, etc., have no clothes. But then notice that God's gifts given to Daniel also gives him outlasting power. Look at that last verse. It's very quiet. You're liable to bypass it totally. But it says, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Every other leader died before Daniel did. God gave Daniel outlasting power or life, right? Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was the king of the universe, the center of the universe, died. His offspring, Belshazzar, thinks he's the center of the universe and can flaunt God and take his vessels and blaspheme him and stuff, dies, right? Here's Daniel. He's still there. I don't know about you, but that's pretty cool. That's encouraging. So he will outlast the big-headed Nebuchadnezzar and the egotistical Belshazzar all the way to Cyrus. And further, with a little reflection, it becomes clear 
that all of these non-Jewish leaders, for all of the problems they have, they will actually benefit because of God's favor on Daniel and his three friends. The pagan non-Jewish realm will benefit because of Daniel and the three young men. Seek the peace, the shalom of the city where I'm sending you exile because in its shalom, its welfare, you will find its shalom. Even the pagans, the non-Jewish realm will benefit from Daniel and the three. And you realize, oh, this is God's kindness. God's kindness ripples out beyond his people to even his people's captors. Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah's, their hardships, and it was hardship, brings God's mercy to reach beyond them into the broader realm. As I said, it's a hardship. As I gave you the illustration, if somebody were to capture you when you were 13 and throw you into Iraq and, and put you in a three-year immersion program without your friends, without your family and all of that, it would be a hardship. When we were, got stationed in Turkey, I mean, it was not uncommon to have a... Um, what do they call it? It was a cultural crisis. Everybody had one. You know, you're there in this foreign country, and after a while you realize there's not a 7-Eleven anywhere, there's not a Safeway or a Crest anywhere. You've got different ways to buy things. Oh, everything you're used to doing in America, like doing the OK sign, long before it was considered a white power sign by some people, it was actually a curse word or a curse sign to Turkish people. Do you know how many of us Americans really messed up when we did the, hey, it's OK, whoa, they were offended, right? It was a total cultural makeover. It was shocking. But we had friends. We had each other. We had, we had a little America on the base. And it was still a shock. Imagine if you're thrown into something like this. And there's no little Judah. Total hardship. And it's through their hardship that God's mercy comes to them but also reaches beyond them to the broader realm. In fact, you need to read chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 with that recognition in mind, all those, all those political leaders actually benefit by God's mercy through Daniel and the three. And it's for their good. All that happens is actually for Babylon's good, not just God's people, but even those who are not his people. His mercy ripples out beyond his people to the broader realm. That, my friends, is worth pondering long and hard. That's God's intention for us. So what hardships at work are you experiencing in your work, in your work environment that you're dealing with? Is it possible that they are actually meant to be the doors where God's mercies ripple out into a broader realm? Well, my friends, we're done with chapter 1. Let's pull this together and tie this up. Contrary to sight and sense and limited logic, hopefully the little CNN reporter with the nickel-plated microphone image helps out, but contrary to sight and sense and limited logic, God is quietly on the move. God is quietly on the move. Is this not an important lesson to take with us wherever we go, no matter no matter what arrogant cuss ascends the throne, no matter what power-hungry man waltzes into executive offices, no matter what heavy-handed people seize national power, oh, God is quietly on the move, no matter what they think. The Lord gave, God gave, God gave. 
further that secret in verse 2, 9, and 17. The Lord gave, God gave, God gave. Helped to keep, to quote from, from Ralph Davis, helped to keep the sanity and the sensibleness of Daniel and Hananiah and, and um, Mishael and Azariah. Helped to keep their sanity and sensibleness glued together. Which gave them then courage to do things like take a risk like actually offering a decently planned out alternative while they also received the best education that Babylonian, Babylonian you forced down their throats. You may be in a work situation that, is, that is, feels threatening, one that is trying to suck you into a worldview that is completely at odds with God, with all of their DEI, diversity, equality, and, and inclusion classes and so forth, before you get mad and start trying to burn a house down, maybe spend some time with Daniel's God in Daniel 1. Learn. Is there a possibility you might be able to actually use that for the good of others, right, without being swallowed up in it? Let the secret the Lord gave, God gave. Let that soak into your bones and let it guide you along. What's the wise way to go through with this? You don't compromise. It's not a compromise that you give up your faith. But how do you work through this without burning the house down? Because you're called to what? To seek the peace of the city where God has sent you captives. If you don't realize this, we are in captivity in our own country, right? God has sent us into captivity for to seek the peace, the shalom of the city where we have been sent in captivity because in its shalom we'll find shalom. How does that work out? Daniel 1 and Daniel's God in Daniel 1 gives us some good indications. And so my friends, the chapter is calling us to grow in our confidence in Daniel's God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for Daniel. What a tough situation. To be honest, Lord, many of us would have cracked in that situation. Would have lost it. Lord, thank you for the favor you showed him. Thank you for the fact, and the other three, for Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Thank you for being with them. May, Lord, their faith in you inspire our greater commitment and greater confidence in you, their God. We pray for wisdom, we pray for thoughtfulness, we pray for your help as we go forward doing what you have called us to do, to seek the, the, the peace of the city where you have sent us in exile, because in its peace we will find peace. We want to do that for your honor and for your glory. And so help us in Jesus' name, amen.